My name is Pete Smith. For those I haven't had the joy of meeting, uh, thank you for coming out to Good News this morning. There's a saying that goes around among preachers that says, when you go to a church, uh, you need to realize that the people who most wanted you to come may be the people who most want you to leave. <laughs> uh, about 18 months into uh, being a first-time pastor, I remember experiencing this. Uh, one Sunday while I was preaching, about three or four different people, one by one, uh, would get up very abruptly, exit, and go out the door and slam the door behind him. <laughs> now, being the dumb guy that I was, I didn't realize that anything was kind of going on until about the third person slammed the door. And then I realized, oh man, there must be some sort of protest going on underway. And uh, if they had thrown some tomatoes at me, I might have gotten the clue phone a little sooner. Uh, in recent weeks, uh, I had uh, crossed into matters that they had vehemently opposed. Uh, I had unknowingly, actually I had knowingly stepped on a cultural landmine. One of the things I noticed as I've traveled around in uh, suburban and urban and rural areas around the country in different areas here in the United States, uh, that every single place has a culture uh, that forms people uh, far more than that culture realizes. And uh, whatever group that we operate in forms us. It tells us what to value, what not to value, who to give status to, and who not to associate with. And it will even use religion to reinforce its perspective. Every group we're a part of encourages us to, to identify people as insiders and identify others as outsiders. And they tell us how to treat the insiders and how to treat the outsiders. And oftentimes, that formation needs a major reversal. Uh, and usually, though, there's a big barrier that's keeping it from happening. And when that barrier gets challenged, watch out. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We are in the uh, beginning stages of a brand new reading plan here at Good News. Uh, make sure you get one of the reading plans out in the entryway if you have uh, uh, not had one and not been able to keep up. We've only gone one week into the eight weeks, uh, so you can start right along with us this coming week. Uh, but the Gospel of Luke was written to a, a man that was a high social standing man, a man by the name of Theophilus, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, it's my personal hunch uh, that this man was the philosophist, uh, I'm sorry, the Theophilus who used to be and serve as a high priest a few years after all these Jesus events took place. And so Luke is writing to him uh, to give him a reliable Christian explanation of how Judaism split uh, with this other Jesus-centered movement that spread all throughout the Roman Empire. And he makes a sustained argument all through the Gospel of Luke that this was a legitimate and an inevitable movement of God that the Jews shouldn't persecute. In fact, uh, they shouldn't persecute the Christians, and instead they should submit to Jesus as their Messiah. They shouldn't treat Christians as hostile people that are outsiders, especially if they haven't done anything to deserve it. 
And so he makes this argument all through Luke and Acts that Christians ought not to be persecuted by the Jews. And one of the first things that Luke brings to Theophilus' attention is what took place when Jesus of Nazareth went to Nazareth. Look with me in your Bibles there, verse 14. Verse 14 says, Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding countryside. He began to teach in their synagogues, and he was praised by all. Okay, that sounds really good, doesn't it? That's a great start. Uh, Jesus' ministry is starting out in a very positive note. And then we read this. It says in verse 16, Now Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Okay, hey, it's the hot new uh, preacher coming back to his roots, right? These are the people who knew him. They knew him. He knew them. Uh, he's the ultimate insider in Nazareth, right? And uh, this should go really great, right? Okay, let's see what verse 16 says. Uh, now Jesus, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to tell them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being reread. All were speaking well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. Okay, so the, the hometown crowd is eating Jesus' preaching up, right? <laughs> Why in the world are they so amazed? What in the world did he say that just flabbergasted them and made them like this? Well, Jesus is quoting the prophecies of Isaiah from about 700 years earlier, uh, where Isaiah is prophesying about a coming servant of the Lord who was going to come and begin to reverse all their terrible fortunes. And as uh, the people in Nazareth understood it, uh, they expected that this servant of the Lord was going to come and free them from the tyranny of the rule of the Roman Empire. And Jesus makes it super obvious that he's the long-awaited servant of the Lord. The Spirit is on him. He's just gone to see John the Baptist. And when he got baptized, uh, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove from heaven and remained on him. God spoke, this is my one dear son in whom I will well please, right? And then he goes out and he gets tempted for 40 days out in the wilderness by Satan. And then he succeeds in all those temptations, right? And then he launches his ministry in Galilee and he's preaching and the whole area is getting really excited, especially because he's doing miracles. And news about him has gone out all over the place. He's getting invited to preach in all the synagogues. He's the hottest guy that people want in their synagogue. Everybody's showing up that day to synagogue. And now he's on his home turf in Nazareth, and he's giving his own people, the insiders of his life, inside information about what his mission is all about. And guess what? It's exactly what the people of Nazareth wanted. 
This is it. He's here. He's the one. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the rightful heir of the throne of David. He's going to reverse all their fortunes, right? This is biblical. The people of Nazareth had no problems with Jesus identifying himself as the Messiah. The hometown crowd was so pumped. They said in verse 22, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Yeah, he's one of us. He's going to make Nazareth great. He's going to put Nazareth on the map. We got an in with the famous servant of Isaiah. It says in verse 23, Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote me to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself, heal yourself. And they say, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown too. All right, so here Jesus, he's reading their minds as the crowd, as he preaches, and, and he understands that they expect him to do all the miracles that they heard about elsewhere, okay? People are excited. Everything's going smooth in the synagogue. And then Jesus drops a bomb. Look with me at verse 24. It says, and he added, I tell you the truth. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up in three and a half, for three and a half years, and there was a great famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a woman who was a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, they forced him out of town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. So he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he began to teach the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority. What in the world happened? Everything was so positive, and all of a sudden they wanted to kill him. How in the world did they go from being super excited to being totally outraged? Now, there's such a great reversal here that Jesus actually never returns back to Nazareth. How did Jesus get himself canceled? Well, there's a few things you need to know about Nazareth and first century Judaism in order to understand this, okay? Uh, the majority of the Jews in Jesus' time lived in small towns and villages. Nazareth was founded uh, as a Jewish settlement in a Gentile territory. It was a frontier town. Uh, scholars estimate that there probably was about 200 to 480 people living in the town of Nazareth at this time. And in all likelihood, not a single non-Jew lived there. But it wasn't an isolated place, okay? Uh, it was only four miles away from another city being built by Herod Antipas, the city of uh, Sepphoris, okay? And it was also near some other really main highways that connected other major cities in the region. Uh, people in other areas around Nazareth knew about Nazareth. It had a reputation. Uh, people there had a certain 
aloof, independent streak about them, and they thought they were more special than others there in Nazareth. Nazareth uh, would have not been, uh, uh, they actually would have been a lot more conservative as a town than uh, the other nearby cities, and it would have been much more family-oriented town as well. Uh, Aramaic was the primary common language that would have been spoken there. Uh, in other uh, cities nearby, they would have spoke more Greek. But there in Nazareth, they spoke Aramaic. And with the synagogue's help, uh, Nazareth held tightly onto their culture by tying their values to the Hebrew Bible, more so than the, also the other urban nearby centers. But Nazareth had a gospel problem. They saw the world through strict racial and ethnic divisions. Nazareth's mission was to turn Galilee of the Gentiles into Galilee of the Jews. Uh, their goal was to retake the promised land like they did back in Joshua's day and eventually uh, displace all of the other people groups who felt they were outsiders, who they thought were outsiders, and uh, they used their Bible to support their perspective and inspire their mission to do this. And so the vast majority of rabbinic teaching back in Jesus' day uh, was actually elitist and oftentimes hostile to Gentiles. Uh, they taught Jewish central, uh, they had a Jewish-centric understanding of history, okay? Uh, so they prided themselves that they were uh, in a special relationship with the one true God in the world. God resided in their temple, not in any of the pagan temples. Uh, God gave them the law. He didn't give the nations the law of the Lord. Uh, Jews also minimized contact with Gentiles because of the level of persecution that they had endured in recent centuries. You may remember that 195 years earlier to this, 100,000 Jews died when Antiochus IV tried to turn the Jews into Greeks. And as a result, the Jews capitalized on that re uh, recent history to excuse themselves from being uh, nice and cordial towards the Gentiles in their midst. They viewed themselves as the victims. And they viewed their, their victimhood as an excuse to, to be able to be rude towards these oppressors in their mind. They also saw Gentile rule as a major obstacle to Israeli independence. They couldn't wait to throw off the rule, the rule of Rome and get the throne of David and have a, a king of, of the Israel back on the throne and have an independent state. And so the Jews, they stayed away from the Gentiles as best as they could. Those people over there, those Gentiles, those were the idolaters. They practiced sexual irregularities. They practiced infanticide. They were murderous. They were brutal to their slaves. They had a, a justice system and a penal system that was super overly harsh. They would get terrible judgments for little crimes. Not only that, the Gentiles were ceremonially unclean. They ate unclean food, and cleanness became an identity issue for the Jews. And when you take all that into consideration, it shouldn't be surprising to hear that the Jewish attitudes, uh, they thought of themselves as insiders, and they see these other people as outsiders, and they began to demonize these outsiders, and they viewed Gentiles as little more than beasts. And this is where it changed the gospel. All the antagonism that, that the Jews felt toward the Gentiles actually affected their understanding of the mission of God throughout history. 
it clouded how they read the Bible. According to Isaiah, God had actually made Israel to be a light to the nations so that all the world might be saved. They weren't just supposed to be the model nation attracting people to God and his values in this world, okay? They were supposed to actively go out and have a missionary encounter with the nations like Daniel and his buddies did back in Babylon, right? They were supposed to actively go out and get people to follow the one true God. Now, granted, on one, some rare occasions, uh, they might have uh, uh, the money and the wherewithal to finance a missionary to go out there and do that. But for the most part, Jews excused themselves from being missionaries and evangelists to their Gentile neighbors. They did not like the Gentile outsiders, and they wanted those outsiders to go away. They did not want the outsiders to succeed in God's plans. Now, with all of that in mind, what happened? How did the hometown love Jesus had at the beginning of his sermon change so suddenly? Uh, when Jesus was quoting Isaiah, he tells them, He's the long-expected servant of the Lord uh, that is finally going to fulfill what Isaiah was talking about. And the, the people who were listening that day, they got excited because they wanted all of the benefits that Isaiah was prophesying about. They appropriated all those promises of the Lord to themselves. They viewed themselves as the oppressed. They viewed themselves as the poor. They viewed themselves as the people who were trying to, to live good lives to get what God wanted for them. They believed the good news was for them. That's how they interpreted Isaiah. That's what they expected from God. But when the Lord shows up himself, he basically says, you're reading it wrong. You are misreading Isaiah. Who are the poor? Who are the real economic and spiritually poor people? Who are the oppressed? Who are the captives? Who are the spiritually imprisoned and physically incarcerated people? Who are the blind? Who are the physically blind and spiritually blind? Who are the real oppressed who really need the freedom of the Lord? And Jesus answers this by referring to two famous Old Testament stories from the two most famous prophets that went to the northern kingdom. Elijah and Elisha. And in Elijah's day, there was a huge famine for three and a half years, and there were many widows in Israel. And, but where did Elijah go? And Jesus says he was sent to a poor Gentile widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. She got the blessings of God. She got the ultimate food that she needed. She was the one who had her son get raised from the dead. Elijah was good news for her, and she was not an Israelite. She was a Gentile woman. And then Jesus uses the other famous prophet, Elisha, and he says there were a ton of lepers in Elisha's day in Israel, yet none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian general, okay? Naaman was the general of, he was the commander of an army that was Israel's enemy. 
He was a financially rich man, but he was spiritually poor. And God did a supernatural miracle for him and cleansed him of his leprosy. He wasn't an Israelite. He was a Gentile. So the verses in Isaiah that Jesus quotes is actually describing the ultimate condition of the Gentile world of the nations, okay? Nazareth had no problems with Jesus identifying himself as the Messiah, but as soon as Jesus told them that the good news was for those outsiders, those Gentiles, they flew into a rage, okay? They hated the idea that God would go rescue the wrong people. Jesus blew up their categories about God's plans for the nations, The nations didn't exist as God's enemies. Instead, the nations were God's mission field. He wanted to reach them. Jesus went from preaching in the pulpit to meddling in people's hearts, and Nazareth couldn't stand it. He put his finger right on Nazareth's sin, and he knew the communal hate that they had for those outsiders, and he wanted to get the Nazareth out of these people in Nazareth. So he, and then... That's how he got himself canceled, almost killed. Nazareth thought their mission was to eradicate the Gentiles from Galilee, and Jesus told them they had the complete misunderstanding of the mission of God. Israel had a responsibility to actively reach the nations, not fight them. And because they hadn't, because they hadn't taken the light of the gospel into the nations, Jesus identifies himself as the one who's going to take on that responsibility for himself. So, what does any of this have to do with us today? Well, first of all, as we read Luke and Acts and the rest of the New Testament this year, if you don't get God's plan for global, worldwide redemption you're going to totally misinterpret the Bible and the mission of God to reach these people who are from the disinherited nations. And ultimately, if you misunderstand that, you're going to miss out on God's plan to use you for his mission. But I want us to think about us as well. I said earlier that every single culture we've been a part of encourages us to identify people as outsiders, Right? They've all told us and described to us who those outsiders are, and they told us how to treat them. Maybe you can go back in your past. Maybe you can recall back in middle school where you started to understand some things in this world, and, and you started to learn how to ostracize people, and maybe it was for racial reasons. Maybe it was for geographical reasons. Look, I grew up in Baltimore County. We made fun of West Virginians, right? Yeah. You guys don't make fun of them. We did, right? Uh, Maybe you ostracize people or have learned how to ostracize people for political reasons. Oh, they're on that end of the spectrum. Oh, they're on that end of the spectrum. Maybe you've learned to, to ostracize people as outsiders because of sexual reasons or gender reasons or religious reasons. Oh, those people, they believe in the wrong God. Let's go after them. Maybe it's been because of economic reasons. Or educational reasons. Oh, they only, they didn't even get out of high school. Let's look down on them. Let's not use them for this job. I don't know which group you're from. And I don't know how your group has formed you. But according to Jesus, whoever you'd like to see as an outsider, 
whoever you'd like to, to see get judged, whoever you wish wouldn't get saved by the Lord, they're the very group of people the good news is for. If we all we do is appropriate the promises of God for ourselves and see ourselves as the recipients of God's salvation and we look forward to God taking out our enemies, then we actually haven't understood the good news like Jesus understood it. Imagine for a minute that people group or whoever it is that you've been taught to look at as an outsider and look down upon. Maybe it's the North Koreans or the Russians or the Chinese or Hamas or Hezbollah or ISIS or the Iranians or maybe it's some set of criminals or some rich people over there or maybe it's the alphabet people, whoever. And maybe your experience with these people have taught you that they oppose you in return. And, and I want you to imagine that you could sit there and you could quote chapter and verse from the Bible for why you're permitted to, to, to oppose them and, and view them as the enemy and, and how Jesus is going to judge them when he comes back. What if something else entirely takes place when Jesus returns? What if the very people that you align with, that you think are on God's side, aren't and get judged instead? What if when Jesus comes back, he saves all your enemies and turns all your friends into his enemies? How would that make you feel? And what if what I'm saying isn't just theory? What if there's a scripture I could point to that might challenge everything you know about what you think Jesus will do when he comes back? In Romans chapter 11, Paul writes about Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Savior. And he writes, But by Israel's transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression means riches for the world and their defeat means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full restoration bring? Do you realize what this is saying? This is saying when Jesus comes back to save Israel from extinction, even more people are going to get saved at Israel's salvation than at Israel's rejection of the Messiah. And what if all the passages that you thought you were reading that says Jesus is condemning these people that you see as outsiders, what if they were actually designed to warn you instead and give, you, and give hope to your enemies, the people who need the good news, who aren't getting it? Look, if the very idea that God would save the people you see as outsiders makes you want to grab me by the ear and throw me into the middle of the highway right now, then maybe you've made God into your own image instead of the other way around. Anne Lamott once wrote, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Tim Keller once wrote, only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself, he writes. Does your view of Jesus allow him to perform reversals you might not expect? Or has your group co-opted your understanding of the gospel into their vision 
of triumphing over their enemies. Daryl Davis is a Christian R&B and blues musician, and he has actively missioned Jesus's mission as his own, and he's done the supernatural work to go out and reach those who view him as an outsider. And he's actively gone to them, and as a result of going out to them, numerous clansmen have abandoned their racism. And oftentimes it's happened over a discussion from the Bible. And this is how he says what he says to them. I was talking with this one Klansman in my car. We were riding around and I was driving and uh, we're talking about the Klan claims to be a Christian organization. So I'm questioning, well, if you're Christian, why are you, you know, burning up the cross? And long story short, when they light the cross at a ceremony, it serves two purposes. Fire, symbolically, is a purifier. And... Uh, like, you know, if you get a splinter in your finger, your mom takes a needle, puts it in the fire to purify it, and then digs it out of your finger so you don't get infected, uh, number one. So symbolically, they use the fire just to signify the purity of the white race. Second reason they use the fire on the cross is because they are Christian, and they're lighting the way for Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is going to return one day. Well, I countered that there had to be two Jesus Christs, and, they, and he said, no, it's only one Jesus Christ, Daryl. I said, no, there's two. There's yours and there's mine. And uh, he said, well, what, is your Jesus Christ black or something? I said, no, he's not black. But he's not white either. Now, he, he, you know, he's olive complex, if anything, because of the area where he appeared. I've been to Damascus, Syria. I've been to that area. And everybody there was olive complex. And when Jesus appeared there, he appeared as one of them. So the guy said, what's your point? I said, my point is, there are two Jesus Christ. Your Jesus Christ, you, ha- you, you have to light the cross for he goes, yeah, well, if you were a Christian, you would know, you know, Jesus Christ is going to return. We, we, we're lighting the way for Jesus Christ. I said, well, there's a difference. You have to light the way for your Jesus Christ. My Jesus Christ lights the way for me. Who the heck are you to light the way for Jesus Christ? And this, it made, it, it made him stop and think. And this is what Jeff was talking about, being in an echo chamber, being in a bubble. When you hear this over and over again, it's preached to you over and over again, you begin to believe it's true. But then when you think about it, wait a minute, who am I to light the way for Jesus Christ? The Bible says Jesus Christ is the light. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I've been wrong. But a black guy was telling me that, so he must be wrong. But it is right. It's in the Bible. So there's all this cognitive dissonance going on until they figure it out. Who am I to light the way for Jesus Christ? This is a great argument. Who am I to determine what God's mission should or shouldn't be? You and I, we've got to make a choice. Either we're going to adopt God's great big mission to reach even those that we maybe would even naturally call our enemies, or we're in danger of becoming God's enemies. And it's not enough to adopt God's great big mission to reach others, that we'd rather not see saved, we actually have to go. We can't just sit and wait until they come to us. Naaman the Syrian came to Elisha, but Elijah was sent out to reach that Sidonian woman, Gentile woman. You and I have to go to those people we detest most in our life, and we got to go and share the good news with them. 
Whoever you'd love to ignore, whoever those people are that you would like to avoid, whoever gives you the most amount of grief, you have to actively seek them out. And you've got to bless them. And if you adopt Jesus' mission as your own, uh, you have to do the supernatural work of loving them and announcing the good news to them. Look, the heart disease that was there in Nazareth is still alive and well in our hearts today. And we have to guard against it. And the best way to guard against it is by taking action. And I get it. This is a really uncomfortable challenge. And it's supposed to be. But none of us will do it until we actually see how the great reversalist himself took on the ultimate reversal in order to make the great reversal possible for everybody. Not until we see what Jesus did when he died on the cross because people rejected his mission to reach both the Jews and the Gentiles, not until we understand that he died because of this uh, perspective that, that the people in Nazareth had, will we actually get what Jesus is talking about and do it. As I look back over the course of my life and the people my group taught me to make outsiders, uh, God has systematically made reversal after reversal in my heart as I've understood more and more about the great missionary heart of Jesus for the most spiritually impoverished in this world. Outsiders have become insiders in my heart as I've missioned as Jesus has missioned and adopted his mission as my own. And I encourage you to do the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I want to thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for taking on the greatest reversal of all and coming to this world, a world full of sinners that were enemies in their hearts towards you. And you came and preached the good news to those who needed it most. And you died in order to do that. Lord, you have not abandoned the nations to just go on as your enemies. Instead, you have actively sought to reach them for the last 2,000 or more years, Lord. It's always been your plan to, to bring and redeem everybody from every people group to yourself. And Lord, it's a challenge. It's a challenge when we have been taught and formed to, to, to view others as outsiders and not go out and reach them. But Today, we're being challenged to do that very thing that we don't want to do. And I pray that as we understand what you did, Lord Jesus, and the cost it was on your life, that we would understand and it would melt our hearts to go love our neighbors as ourselves and teach them the good news of Jesus. I pray for anybody here who has never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. They didn't know that the good news was for them and that they've been spiritually lost. I pray that, Jesus, you would make known to them that you are the one who can save them from their sins, even the sins of making people outsiders in their hearts. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?